Thank you, Jay, for reading us the word of the Lord this morning. I'm excited to be here. How are you doing? Good to hear. And for those of you who are joining us online, we're excited that you have welcomed us into your living room or whatever space you're in today. I'm going to begin our time here. We'll come back to the scriptures that Jay has read in my message here, but I'm going to begin with a bit of a survey. And so you know the drill. If you've been a part of Hillcrest for a while, there's kahoot.it is the website you can go to. And um, I'm going to ask several questions. One's just for fun. Uh, Two are looking back and three are about today. So six question survey this morning. And um, so we'll just give you a chance to chime in. The number for that game is 907-5922. So hopefully you got that and you can just sign in and play along and really help us to understand where people are at today. 907-5922 to help us with today's Kahoot survey. Again, we're finding out what you believe. We're finding out where you're at. It's always great to find out exactly uh, from you guys what, uh, what's going on in your heart and your minds and things like that. All right. So it looks like we've got a number of people in. So let's begin. All right. So our first question is, one of my favorite things about COVID season, this is a fun question, okay? Every day is a masquerade party, or I can secretly wear pajama pants in online meetings, like, like that guy. The Rough Riders are undefeated, or the Bombers are winless. Which one makes you the happiest of those ones? What's your favorite thing of those four? Okay, secretly wearing pajama pants is definitely the winner, and the Rough Riders come second. That's great. Okay. Now, these are reflections on the last eight weeks. The messages I needed to hear or still need to hear from the Believe series weeks one to four are, the God of the Bible is the only true God. God is involved in and cares about my daily life. I can come into relationship with God by his grace through faith in Jesus. And the Bible is the inspired word of God that guides my belief and action. Which one of those did you, did you need or do you still need? That, which message do you need the most? in your life of those four. Those are the first four weeks of our Believe series. All right, God is involved in and cares about my daily life is the runaway winner. Over 51% of you said that's the message I needed. That's the message maybe that you still need to hear, that God is involved in and cares about your daily life. Okay, let's go to the next question. This is about the last four weeks, weeks five to eight. The message I needed or still need to hear from Believe is, I am significant because of my position as a child of God. That's the red triangle. And then the blue diamond, the church is God's primary way to accomplish his purposes on earth. In the yellow circle, all people are loved by God and need Jesus Christ as their Savior. And then the green square, God calls all Christians to show compassion to people in need. Which one did you need or you still need the most? And number one is God calls all Christians to show compassion to people in need. Now, the runner-up is I am significant because of my position as a child of God. That's really great. Now I'm going to ask you three that are about today's message, what I'm going to talk about today. So we'll get a survey on what you believe. I believe that everything I am or own comes from God and belongs to God. Okay, I believe this 100%. That's the red triangle. I believe, but occasionally experience doubt. The blue diamond. I'm not sure I believe this. Yellow circle and green squares. I don't believe this. So chime in. Be honest. That's what we're looking for. All right. So 20 people say they occasionally experience doubt. The rest say they believe that. But 20 occasionally experience doubt. That's really great. I love that people are being so honest and it helps us to see things. Next one. I believe that a Christian should live a sacrificial life, not driven by pursuit of material things. So I believe this 100%. I believe but occasionally experience doubt. I'm not sure I believe this. I don't believe this. Those are the options. I believe a Christian should live a sacrificial life, not driven by the pursuit of material things. All right, so our assessment of ourselves in this area, we have... Uh, 21, that's the second highest, saying that they occasionally experience doubt in this area. And 
the other big one is people who say they believe it. Okay, so that's good. We're showing that this is a real thing that we're all sort of, many of us are wrestling with. I believe that Christians should give at least 10% of their income to God's work. I believe this, 100%. I believe, but occasionally experience doubt. I'm not sure I believe this. I don't believe this. Okay, so those are the four options to look at. Here we go. Four, three, two, one. Okay, so 31 out of, uh, well, 66% believe this, 100%. Eight have doubts in this area. Five, not sure they believe this. Three, don't believe it, or 6%, I guess. All right, it's good. So now you've, now, right now, you're probably having a thought, and that's like, oh, no, I showed up at church on the Sunday where they're going to talk about money. Ah, yes. And you know what? If this is your first time chiming in, uh, whether you're with us online or you're here at first time, let me tell you this. It is so rare that we actually talk directly about money at this church. In fact, I, uh, I feel almost guilty about how little I talk about it. I reckon that in the last 18 years that I've been on the teaching team at Hillcrest Church, I've spoken directly on money two times. One of them was in 2008 when I was at the, with the financial collapse was happening. The Great Recession had just begun. And uh, I, was, I had traveled to Africa in November 2008 and came back from Burkina Faso. And when I came back, I couldn't help but talk about North American materialism and how addicted we are to stuff. And, uh, you know, and I, I preached that sermon, which was one of those two that I've preached. And when I was done communicating that, uh, it was many weeks later that one of my friends who still goes to this church, he came up to me and he said, you know what? My plans for that Christmas was to get a big, big flat screen TV. But then I heard you speak and I didn't get that for Christmas. <laughs> so I still don't know to this day whether that Christmas was extra disappointing for him or maybe it saved Christmas. I'm not totally sure what was the result. But I haven't talked a lot about money, and I know it's possible for a pastor to speak too much about money. If you're speaking about money more than Jesus did, then probably it's too much. But in my case, I've spoken way less about it than Jesus did. So I probably am guilty on the other end and need to be a little less shy about talking about something that Jesus taught his early followers about. So let me start with this. Did you know that most of the charitable giving in the United States is fueled by Christian belief? I found this study. Let me read it. I just, I'm going to read you mostly some stuff with some interesting stats in it. It says, um, newly re- uh, newly released data shows that the religious among us are more likely to give to charities than those who do not identify with a faith tradition. The data results from the Philanthropy Panel Study, an ongoing project at the University of Indiana's Lilly Family School of Philanthropy that tracks U.S. household giving. David King, director at the Institute of Faith and Giving at the school, said that Giving USA special report on giving and religion released on October 26, 2017 uh, by the Giving Institute reaffirms what many researchers in the field have long known, that there's a substantial connection between religion and giving. The report says there's a staggering difference between the charitable giving practices of the religiously affiliated, so you say, I am affiliated with some religion, or some church, or some temple, or mosque, or synagogue, or something like that, and those with no religious affiliation. There's a staggering difference. He says, well, 62% of religious households give to charity, only 46% of non-religious households do. So it's a 16% difference. 16, uh, religious households are 16% more likely to give to charity. And there's more to it. Um, Someone with a religious affiliation was more than two times more generous than someone without a religious affiliation. So not only are they 14 or 16% more likely to give to charity, when they give, they give on average more than double what those who don't, aren't religiously affiliated give. And those who attend services are even more likely to give, whether it's weekly or monthly. We really see the connection grow This is the author. We see the correction grow with continued involvement in a religious community. 
Not surprisingly, religious-affiliated households are much likely to give to uh, to give more than non-religious household to religious institutions. That obviously makes sense, so to giving to church or something like that. But religious people also contribute to other types of charity at similar or higher rates than their secular counterparts. So if you say, well, if Christians are giving, they're just giving to church. Yes, they give a lot to church, but they also are giving uh, at the same rates or higher rates than the non-religious to secular charities as well. And some studies have estimated that the faith that faith motivates as much as 75% of all charitable giving in the United States. 75% of all the charitable giving. So if you took those who are religious and have faith and those who are not, it's three times as much giving is coming from those who are religiously affiliated. One is more likely to come across opportunities to engage, volunteer, and to give of one's time and money when one is involved in a faith community. Faith communities matter. Community matters and connections matters. It's being with people in a voluntary association and a faith community or congregation that binds people together that helps them to see needs, to want to engage and give of themselves. And here at Hillcrest, we know that that's pretty much the story of the Better Together Food Drive. Together, everyone through for many years now has achieved more. And this church has worked together to organize the food drive and then partnered with this generous city that we lived in. And the people of Moose Jaw have been generous to to the food bank through that cause. One more thing. This is all American stats. Let me give you something from Canada. Have you heard of the HALO Project? I, I guess, I'm guessing most people haven't, but the HALO project was um, done by people at the University of Toronto and a, a group called the Cardis Group. And this is what they write. They say, it has long been known in Canada that the churches, synagogues, mosques, and temples have social, spiritual, and communal value. What we found that those congregations all make significant common good contributions that have remarkable economic value when measured by traditional economic development tools. But that's just the tip of the iceberg. The actual common good value those congregations produce, their halo effect through weddings, artistic performances, suicide prevention, uh, ending substance abuse, housing initiatives, jobs, job training, food drives, welcoming, new, welcoming newcomers to Canada, and more and more and more and more and more. They make cities so much more livable and these have so much common good that, they, that these things have an economic value. And that's what they try to do with the Halo Project. What's the economic value of churches and, in, or, and other uh, places of worship? Here's the, here's the bottom line. It is estimated that for every dollar a congregation spends, so basically every dollar someone donates to a church creates $4.77 worth of common good services a city does not have to provide. I'm going to read that again. It's estimated that every dollar, so if you donate a dollar to a church, every dollar creates $4.77 worth of common good services a city does not have to provide. So, to sum it up, if you erase Hillcrest and its budget provided by voluntary donations and you replace all the common good it does, the government would have to raise almost five times the church's budget every year and take that money from taxpayers to do it. So, just a little bit about Christian giving. Now, I'm gonna, if you're watching this online, I'm going to just invite you or even in-house to, to comment on this. So I want to engage you with a question. Who taught you about money and what did they teach you? Can you do it in one line? If you're online, can you do, sum it up in one line? Like, my mom taught me this or I learned from a friend this or I read a book when I was, that impressed me when I was in college or whatever. Who taught you about money and what did they teach you? Okay, so that's the question. If you're online, you can leave a comment for that. Let me tell you one thing my parents taught me about money. When I was old enough to count to 10, they taught me about the practice of tithing. Now, tithing is, a tithe is, is another word for a tenth. 
So basically, they'd show me 10 dimes. This is your allowance, Stephen. And I'd look at it, okay? And they'd say, count it. And I'd count to 10 because I could. And then they'd say, that first dime, that belongs to God. So when we go to church on Sunday, you can put that in the offering plate. I was like, oh, okay. Now, in my mind, I'm thinking, I also know these are good at the store to get candy. And I also know that 10 dimes buys more candy than 9 dimes. So there was many a week, I don't know how many, but there's many a week where I didn't take the first dime to church, but I took it with me to the store. And uh, I didn't always succeed in this practice that my parents were trying to instill in me in the the practice of, of tithing. And I wrestled with it because I thought, I know this honors God, and I think this is a practice that's... My parents were trying to teach me to be a giver. They're trying to teach me to be a giver. I mean, I think my parents understood that a rich life is not made up in just what you get. A rich life is made up by what you give. You know, you, don't, you, know, you can't say, this is the rich life. Look at all I collected. It's more about what did you contribute what did you bring to the table? What did you give? And uh, they knew that that would be a richer life. So they wanted me to be a giver, so they, they were training me in this sort of tool of tithing. And I fought, about, I fought with it internally. I, I wouldn't tell my parents, oh, I didn't give my offering this week because I wanted more candy. But, I, you know, many times that was the reality. But before I was 12, the battle had been won. From about that point on till this day today, it's been my practice to give 10% of all that I, ha- I get as income to God. So there were really key moments that, where this became very important. One key moment was when I was 16, I got a job at a factory which paid twice, about twice as much as my friends who were working at McDonald's. And so I was one of the more well-off teenagers at 16 amongst my peer group. And when I got my first big, fat paycheck... It was automatic. The first 10% went to God. I had already done it with dimes. Now I was just doing it with a lot more zeros attached. And it wasn't hard because I already was in, the, I was in the habit. And I'm thankful to my parents for doing that when it was dimes because then it was easier to do. When if Some people have, or many people have, have uh, embraced this habit when they're adults. And it's quite a trick to be able to do that when you're looking at hundreds or thousands of dollars. But for me, It was that habit I learned as a child that really helped me. So that's something my parents taught me that I'm very grateful for. Uh, A couple years ago, I was doing TurboTax, doing my my taxes online. And and I was doing my TurboTax that at the end, they flag things that they think that the CRA might take notice of. And one of the things they flagged one year was your charitable receipts. And they actually said a statement. I can't remember exactly what it was. But your charitable giving is above a certain percentage. I think in my mind it was eight or something. And that the CRA is going to flag this. (laughs) And I remember thinking, 8%? It's been my lifelong practice to give 10. And I looked at my receipts from that year. And this is the thing that really struck me. I had receipts from other things I'd given to. Some of them spontaneous giving, some regular giving. But they weren't my the 10% I was giving regularly at my local church. And then I came to realize, because I did actually get audited that year for my charitable receipts. I went back, and I went back for several years, and every year I realized that that habit my parents taught me far out, it it created more of giving in my life than all of my whims along the way. Like I'd hear about a need, and I'd go, oh, I want to give to that, and I would give. But it was nothing compared to that steady what I did every uh, paycheck. It It never matched up. So, I was, I was sort of looking at this and going, the CRA is going to flag me for 8%? I don't think they do that anymore. I think that maybe somebody complained because I've never seen that show up on my TurboTax since. But they're going to flag me if I had 8%. But in the Bible, people were incredibly uh, generous. Incredibly generous. Um, my parents taught me tithing because the idea was that, you know, in the Old Testament, um, the people of Israel tithed to God. But... Um, a few years ago, I read Randy Alcorn's great book, Money, Possessions, and Eternity. And in it, he points out that probably the Israelites were giving more like 23%. There's, there was a tithe, there was another one like it, and then there was one they did every three years. They were probably giving about 23% of their income. And then you go to the New Testament thinking, oh, well, good, the New Testament, maybe that's not as big a deal. But then you see this radical generosity in the New Testament. So when I was getting flagged by TurboTax, I was like, 
I still have a long ways to go in growing and giving. I'm, I've just, I've just, I'm still doing the stuff I did when I was a kid and maybe a wee bit more. I want to become much more. I want a much richer life of a greater contribution down the road. Don't flag me at 8%. When I hit 20, let me know. I'll cheer, right? So it's very interesting. Anyhow, by now, some of you have probably chimed in online and you've said, hey, this is someone who taught me something about money. That's great. I've said all this uh, not to solve all the arguments about uh, how much you should give to God, if there are arguments. My, this message is bigger and broader than talking about money. And, uh, but I do want to ask the question, what do Christians believe that fuels greater generosity with their money their time, their hospitality, their volunteering, and, and more. What is it that they actually believe? Is it that they believe that they owe God 10% and 90% is theirs? I'm here to tell you that's not it. That's not the belief. In fact, I came to realize that that's how I thought about it for many years because my parents had taught me a very simple way of understanding it. But I came to realize that that 10% what represented so much more. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. So let's go to today's belief statement and we'll look at it. So the question that might be asked is, what is God's call on my life? Is it for me to give him a compartment in my life to segregate 10% or some other number and, and say, God, that's yours and the rest is mine? And the answer is no. Here's the answer. Do you want to read the belief statement with me? It says, I believe. I believe Everything I am and everything I own belongs to God. And that was pretty good, but it didn't sound so convicted. So let's read it again, okay? I believe everything I am and everything I own belongs to God. That's the belief that undergirds. That's the belief that fuels Christian generosity. It's not that 10%... Or any or one whatever percent, but that all a hundred percent is actually God's. The verse that goes with this is Psalm twenty four one to two. It's the the verse of the week. The earth is the Lord's, and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For He founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. So the, there's a one word name for this belief. It's called stewardship. Stewardship. And the idea is that you are a steward. What's a steward? A steward is someone who manages things for someone else. So you could call it managership, I guess. But the, the old word is stewardship. God is the owner. We are entrusted with many things to manage for him, but he's the owner. So you see that in the Bible. In Genesis, you see that God entrusted Adam and Eve with creation. And so all humans have a, a role to play in creation care. And so that, this week, as I read those scriptures, I thought about that. What's, is there another step I can take in the area of creation care, of caring about the environment or the world that I live in, um, and, and managing it well, right, in my little sphere of influence? So I thought about that. Uh, of course, money is a part of it, stewarding the money and possessions. What about my house? Is my house just for me, or is there a way in which God wants to use it for others as well by showing hospitality? I know right now it's a little difficult with that in this COVID season, but still things that we should be thinking about. Uh, What about, uh, I've been entrusted with children, right? In my life, it's four children between me and my wife. What does it look like to manage that trust that God's given me well in light of the fact that he's, they're really his kids. He's given me the, and my wife the stewardship of them. So there's lots of things that we ask about under this banner of uh, everything I own belongs to God and everything I am belongs to God, which brings us back to our scripture. Matthew 25, 14 to 30. So just before I get into it, let me just say this. Jesus is telling uh, several stories in a row. They all sort of have the similar um, focus. And the focus is that Jesus is going to come again. He's going to come again. And when he does, he'll be the one who gives us the assessment of, the, of how we lived our lives. 
And how will, how will you know whether you, if you're a follower of Jesus, that you've done it right? What are some of the things that he's looking for in, in the people that follow him? And so he tells several stories. Um, like he tells, he, he says, so he's basically saying, this is what faithful discipleship looks like while we wait for his return. So the stories tell us the disciples who are prepared for his return will be responsible. There's a story he told about a wise, a wise servant who's doing what the master wants done when the master returns. So they're responsible. And, and he tells that, that faithful disciples will be ready. And so there's, there's these, uh, well, they're like bridesmaids. They're called, it's called the parable of the, the, the wise and foolish virgins. But, you know, basically it's like bridesmaids that aren't ready. Some of them aren't ready when the bridegroom arrives for the wedding to begin. And so he says, a faithful disciple is ready for when Jesus comes again. And then they're also intentionally productive. And that's the story we're looking at today. That those who are ready for when Jesus comes again have been intentionally productive. Now this story, uh, if you look it up in the NIV Bible, you'll see the headliner says, The Parable of the, of the Bags of Gold. And when I was a kid growing up, my Bible would have had a headline that said the parable of the talents. So which is it? Well, a bag of gold is a pretty good description because that's literally what they would have probably been given is bags of gold. And so, um, but a talent is like a weight measurement. So 75 pounds of gold is what many commentators think it is. 75 pounds. Now, do you know that an ounce of gold is worth a lot? And there's a lot of those in a, you know, so you do the math um, some have said that this is a life's earnings. One bag of gold is a life's earnings for a person of that time. So if you think about how much you might earn in a lifetime, uh, you know, it's over a million dollars. It's over a million dollars. If you make $25,000 a year and you work for 40 years, that's a million dollars, right? Some of you make more than $25,000 a year, okay? So it's a, this is a lifetime of earnings, and some of them had two of these bags, and one guy had five of these bags, but you can't miss this. It's a big trust that's been entrusted to them. It's a lifetime of earnings. And so we, we get a little bit of a hint that this is talking about our lives. You know, the old world word talents is also sort of helpful in a funny way because when you think about it, the word talent, just as we use it in the English, and again, this is not probably even fair to do it this way, but it really almost providentially accidentally gets us to the meaning of the parable too. Because it's not just an investment of your resources, your money. It's an investment of who you are. How do we invest who we are for God? So God's given us talents, abilities, gifts, personalities, strengths, opportunities, relationships, unique backgrounds. There's a lot of things that make up who you are. And how do we invest those things? How do we steward those things, manage them, so that God gets a great return on what he's entrusted us with? Let's read. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. And the man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I've gained five more. And his master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. And then the exact same thing happens to the guy with the two bags, and he gets the exact same reply. Just a few comments about the first two guys. The master gave just the right amount to each servant based on their ability. Now, that's good leadership. You've got two people working for you, and you go, this guy can handle this much, and this, pers- this guy can handle this much. Then match them up with that responsibility, right? That's smart leadership. And he's done that. And if you think about that, has God done that with us? Has God done that with us? So some people, if, if, if you're oozing talent in every direction... You're skilled in all sorts of things. 
Don't kid yourself. God expects a return on that greater talent. And if you say, man, my, my abilities are more limited. Well, God knows that. He's compassionate towards you. It's not, he's not, it's not, this is the neat thing about it. At the end of the day, both the guy with the five talent, the five bags of gold and the two bags of gold, they get the same commendation. Two, the guy with two turn it into four. The guy with five turn it into ten. You think, in most workplaces, who would get the praise? The overachieving five to ten guy. They get the same praise. Because God knows how he made each one. So if you say, I struggle in areas where I have, I, I'm, I have some disability in some of my areas and, and in life, and there's ways in which I can see other people soaring, and I'm barely crawling, and I'm, I'm trying to be faithful. You know what? God rewards faithfulness according to your ability. So whatever you have to do, Put your hand to it. At the end of the day, you, you know, we aren't going to be in a lineup in heaven and standing beside Billy Graham and wishing we weren't. Oh, my goodness. God's going to ask you, were you the faithful version of you that I wanted you to be? Not whether you were Billy Graham. So, he gave them stuff according to their ability The servants put their money to work, and God means for you and I to work for him, to be productive for his kingdom, to point people to him, uh, to love people for him. He he means for us to work, right? Now, it isn't works that makes us right with God. Jesus did that for us on the cross. But once you've got that, my goodness, don't you want to work for the one who did that for you? And we're meant to do that. We're meant to put in effort and be productive for the kingdom. The money was entrusted to them. It's a trust. It wasn't their own money. It was the master's. And our lives are a trust. We're not giving our, giving our lives for our own sake. We're giving it our lives for God and for, and for others. And God, of course, he's got a double claim on our lives. Not just the creator, but he's the redeemer. He's the one who, who bought us back, so to speak, through the cross. And Peter says it this way, we're not our own. We're bought with a price. So let's honor God with our bodies. And faithful service in what you have to do right now leads to greater responsibilities later. You might think, man, I don't think I'm doing anything really significant for God. Yet you have things in front of you to do. Even if you think those things are little, don't discount them and think they're unimportant. They're very important because they're the things that will lead to more. So if you're faithful with those little things you'll be given greater responsibility by God. So there's different levels of abilities here. Five talents and two talents. I want you to think for a second. Do you know somebody who's two and a half times as talented as you are in some area? Would you be willing to admit that? You can, you can think of that person right now. I can think of a person that's two and a half times as talented as me in some area. Can you think of that? Okay. Very few willing to admit that. What a talented group. I didn't think I'd have such a talented group here this morning. That's great. I love working with five talent people. Anyhow, so I often get into this trap where I do two things that, are, that mess things up for me. One is I'll compare my, both. it's all about comparison. That's the trap. I'll see somebody that is more talented than me in some area and I'll feel jealousy or envy towards them because look at what they could do effortlessly, it seems. And I struggle to do what they can do or maybe I don't think I can do it at all. It's not fair. I'm envious. That's one way comparison wrecks things for you. The other way is when you compare, like maybe this area in my life where I am stronger, against someone else's weakness, right? In this case, I'm probably comparing my weakness to their strength, but here, my strength against their weakness. Look at what I can do, and they can't do that. Ha ha, pride. So either way, I get in trouble. The best thing is just to celebrate how God made people. Celebrate them and team up with them, right? So you say, well, you can do this, and I can't do this. So the answer is not for me to go wallow in this or fake it that I can do that. I'm going to learn from you. I'm going to partner with you. When it comes time to do the thing you're strong at, you do it. I'll I'll support you. When it comes time to do the thing I'm strong at, I'll do it. And you can come alongside of me. And let's celebrate the way that that God has made uh, the body of Christ. So I think about um, how we look at each other in the body. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12 21 to 22 says this, the eye cannot say to the hand, 
I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. Indispensable. When you're working in a team situation, when you're, do you treat the people around you as indispensable? We need your contribution. It's not small. It's not insignificant. It matters. That's how the body's supposed to work. That people are indispensable. And that they, their contribution matters. Absolutely does. So God, in the end, God, and this is all about the two guys who went ahead, but God is not going to measure your life by how gifted you were. He knows what level of talent he gave you. He's going to measure your life by how faithful you were. And I think the other thing is uh, how you partnered with people that are different from you. I think it's a real uh, wisdom, and I don't always have it, but I think when people, you can really spot the things in people that uh, are their strengths, where they do shine. God has made them to come alive for him in those areas. And you can point them out and say, I see in you this. That's an incredible thing. I, I'd love to, I want to grow in that myself, to be able to see that in people. So, we often compare our weaknesses with other people's strengths or our strengths with other people, but, or our strengths with other people's weaknesses, but I think it's best is just to celebrate the way that God has made them. Now, what about the other servant, the one who buried his talent in the ground? What if you figure out what you're really good at? You figure out how to do it very well, but you don't figure out why God packed your life full of these things. And so you don't use those things in obedience to God. Well, I think you'd be just as, obedient, just as guilty as this man because in the end, he failed to benefit his master with the talent that he had. Now, why did he bury it in the ground? Well, I always looked at the little accusation made by the master. You wicked, lazy servant, and I was focused on the lazy. He was lazy, and probably, well, truthfully, he was. But he was wicked. And I would say, well, how is he wicked? I, I get that he's lazy, but how is he wicked? And it comes into this little, little dialogue of what he says about the master. He says, I knew that you were a hard man. And later on he says, so I was afraid, and I went out and hid your gold in the ground. He was afraid. Why? He was afraid because he misunderstood the master. So, he says an accusation. Is it true? Was the master a hard man? Well, let's look at the facts. He, the master trusted his servant, servants with multi-million dollar resources. Do you get trusted at your workplace very highly? I worked that factory job in high school for three years. They never once let me drive the forklift. Still sore about it. I could have done it. Let me have a turn. Never got a turn. This master trusted them with incredible resources. That's, that's pretty good. He honored the two-talent servant just as much as he honored the five-talent servant. Does that happen in your workplace? Do the bright lights get all the praise? Or does, is there praise and encouragement for people who maybe don't have the same capacity, but they still are, manage to do their job? That's pretty good leadership be great to work for a boss like that. He commended them with massive encouragement. Well done, good and faithful servants. Does your employer make efforts to reward a job well done? Is there praise? Is there encouragement? Is that kind of atmosphere? Or is it just sort of like, well, that was your duty anyhow. What do you expect? I mean, no, we're not supposed to live for that, but it's nice if you can do that. If you are a boss here this morning, maybe you can add a little bit more to that. Encouragement. Just a thought. But was this master a hard man? We know he was trusting, honoring, and he rewarded his servants. It sort of kind, kind of sounds like the kind of boss the person would like to work, work for. It's also interesting when the servant tells the master that he knows he's a hard man, the master doesn't seem to agree. In fact, when he restates the words of the servant, the hard man phrase is conspicuously absent. It's something that the master cannot embrace because it's not true. So what was the essence of the servant's wickedness? He misunderstood the master. His view of the master caused him to live in fear. And I can totally relate. 
I can totally relate. I think of the different stages of my walk with God. Uh, when I was six, I, I guess you'd say I gave my heart to Jesus. That's probably the language I would have used back then. Um, but I, I decided he was going to be in charge. He owned me. He was the boss of my life. And it made me happy. Really made me happy. He loved me. He had a plan for my life. Uh, he wanted a friendship with me forever. How could I not be happy? I was happy about those things. I remember uh, after I um, basically asked God for his forgiveness for my sin and committed my life to him, that I was really happy. I remember uh, I would ride my bike around the neighborhood just singing songs I learned at church about God and how happy I was. There was a true deep joy that came with following Jesus. Now, along the way, it got a little bit muddy in my thinking because I started you know, encountering some other dynamics. One was that, well, now that you're a Christian, you have stuff to do, right? You know, read your Bible and pray every day, you know, stuff like that. And, and, and you got to do, you know, there's these things you should do and these things you should do and you should do this. And so there was a lot of sort of like rewiring that was happening in my thinking. And a lot of it came to, for me, I, you know, I don't think people necessarily taught me wrong, but I learned it wrong, I think. And I began to think, well, God's love for me is really sort of not, it's sort of a negotiable thing based on my performance. He loves me more because I did good. And I didn't perform so well this week, so he loves me less. I really began to think some thoughts like that in my life. And it's thoughts that I've struggled with my entire life, to be honest. Back and forth. I go into performance mentality, and then I have to pull myself out. And the way to get back out is to re-get acquainted again with the simplicity of the gospel. That God didn't save me because I was terribly likable or because I performed well. He, he knew I was an absolute sinner and I needed a Savior. And so it was absolute mercy and grace that he, he called me to follow him. And I didn't earn it. I didn't deserve it. But he gave it. I had a conversation once. This really woke me up. I had a conversation with a non-Christian. He asked me a little bit about being a Christian. And I started telling him all the benefits of having a relationship with God. He'll always be there with you. Uh, he loves you. He has a plan for your life. He, he, um, you know, it's, in, it's incredible having a relationship with God, I told this guy. A few days later, I think it was, I'm talking with a Christian. He says, how's your relationship with God? I said, oh, not very good. I don't, I, you know, I, I don't always make time to read my Bible or to pray or... You know, I, I, you know, I'm sometimes a little skittish about my faith when I'm talking to other people. I, you know, I started listing all these things. When I was done that conversation, later on, it hit me. When talking about relationship with God to someone who wasn't a Christian, I said it was awesome. And when talking about my relationship with God with someone who was a Christian, I said it was terrible. How could they both be true? And I realized that in one scenario, I was talking about God. And so, yes, it was awesome. And in the other side, I was just talking about me and my performance. And it wasn't that great. And I realized, if those two people had been in the room at the same time and asked me basically the same question, how would I have answered? The thing that really helped me was this. Who's the senior partner in this relationship? Who's the biggest factor in this relationship? Who's the one who initiated this relationship? It's all God. It's all God. He loved me. He died for me. But while I didn't care, while I was indifferent, while I was even hostile, he demonstrated his love for me on the cross. And so I'm not working in my life. I'm not working to try to earn his love now. I've got it as a free gift of grace. I got it. I'm not trying to get up to a passing grade with God. If I can only get past 50% with God, then I'll earn my way. That's not what I'm, I'm living under. The reality is when Jesus died for me, when his, his blood washed my sin away, when that changed, I went from zero with God to 100%. I'm righteous in the sight of God, not because of something I've done, but because of what Jesus had done. And so every time I get into the wrong headspace, I have to go back and sort of 
sort of boral thinking, unhelpful thinking to my brain from that reality that I'm made righteous with God because of Jesus. And now, because I'm 100% right with God because of Jesus, I'm going to live in that. I think it can be the difference between the servants who invest their lives well and the managers who just in fear bury their lives, hide their lives. See, I run into a lot of people and I think they're just like me. They have seasons in their life where they hide themselves from God because they've come to believe that he's a hard man, that he's hard to please. In fact, I, sometimes in my life, I've, I've never said it in those words, but I've all, I think I've actually come to think that God was my most high-maintenance relationship. But the gospel tells me again and again, the good news about Jesus tells me again and again, that's not true. That's not true. I love the verses, um, I think I'm borrowing out of Romans now. I'm just going to paraphrase, but basically, we're not just servants in this. We're sons and daughters. He doesn't just call us servants. He calls us sons and daughters and friends, and there's all sorts of different terminology that reminds us that this relationship is not just performance. It's not just trying to measure up. In fact, we couldn't measure up, but Jesus measured up for us. And so we start 100% with God. That's where we're at, and we live in that today. Would you stand with me? My thought today was just this. I thought, I bet if I've experienced this, this back and forth, you know, sort of like the gospel realities that gripped me when I was a child and made me sing on my bike, and that keep grabbing me again in times of worship, and keep infusing me with life all the way through, they sometimes get supplanted in my mind with other thoughts about my ability, my performance, my failure. I mean, heck, my own heart condemns me. So I don't know where you experience accusation in your life or condemnation in your life. I get it from my own heart. I can get it from other people. I know there are dark spiritual forces that bring it into my life as well. Those are all realities the Bible talks about. But the Bible also talks about how God is greater than our self-condemning hearts. And that the word he speaks over our lives is a better word than the word of condemnation. And so that whole practice of, I failed and now I need to avoid God for a week. (laughs) I was totally challenged with God. When I was a kid, mom and dad would make us apologize to each other, all us brothers. And Well, I had a sister too, but she was way younger. I never did her wrong. Anyhow, (laughs) so we'd apologize I'm sorry, will you forgive me? Because that's what we were supposed to say. And the other one say, I'll forgive you. And it's true, we did forgive each other. But we didn't want to see each other for about a week. But that's not how God forgives. He's faithful and just and he forgives us our sins. He cleanses us instantly. So I keep taking these human experiences and bringing them into my relationship with God and God's saying, that's not how I am, I'm different. I'm different You know what I think one of the cycles of growth you can tell spiritual maturity in your life is happening? It's when that tendency in you to withdraw from God because you feel like you failed to hide from God, that the time span on it shortens. I mean, some people feel like they failed and they wander from God for months. What if it was only weeks? And if it was weeks, what if it was only days? And if it was days, what if it was only hours? What if, it, what if it only took you a couple hours to realize the truth of what the gospel says about you and, and God? What if it was only minutes before you received his grace and forgiveness in your life when you fail? What if it was seconds? I've told you this one before. Sometimes I preach a sermon and I think I really blew it. And it used to be different on this stage. But my tendency was I'd always say, Second from the bottom. This was this step. I'd, I'd actually say internally to myself, I'm just embarrassed. I just preached a t- 
terrible sermon in front of hundreds of people, and you really feel bad about yourself, and I get to this step, and I just remind myself, this is what I'd say, God, I receive your grace. I receive it now. In the moment. Not days from now. Not rethinking this for days. Not wallowing in this. No, I receive it now. When you fail, a sign that you're getting it, a sign that grace is growing in you, a sign that you're probably going to be able to be really productive for the master is you don't distance yourself from God for long. But right away, the truth of what he's done for you, the truth of how he's brought you into relationship, the truth of how his forgiveness is instantaneous, and that you don't need to pay for that forgiveness or earn it in any way is real and true in your heart. Let me pray with you. Right now, just as I, I invite you just to sort of close your eyes and bow your head for this. But if you say, okay, I can totally relate what you're talking about, Steve. I've been, I've, I'm on that cycle a lot of times too. I forget what the gospel says about me and I, I stray or I hide, I guess, from God sometimes. Just put your hand up if that's you. I'm going to pray for you guys just specifically. Okay. Lord, we come before you. Boy, are we broken by sin? It's, it's, that's a no-brainer. We see it all, the evidence all over the place. The fingerprints of your creative genius on us is all over us too. And so we celebrate uh, that you made us and redeemed us. And we still struggle in this, in this time. We still struggle. There's groanings inside of us. Boy, we'd love to just have it perf- the perfection of being with you forever. But you've called us to do some things on this side of eternity that we can't do on that side. You call us to be productive for you. You call us to manage areas of our lives, recognizing that it's all yours, that you're the owner. And Lord, we don't want to misunderstand the master so we become miserable managers. We want to know you. We want to have a clear view of you in our lives. So I pray right today, there's people here, they just need a, a word of affection from their heavenly father. They need the kind of affirmation that Jesus got coming out of the waters of baptism. This is my beloved son or daughter in whom I'm well pleased. I'm well pleased in the way that I made them. I'm well pleased in the plans that I have for them. I'm well pleased in that the blood of Christ has been applied to their life and that they are righteous in my sight And now I just want them to work together in the family business with me. Pointing other people to God. Living in the joy of the relationship that I provide. This is my son. This is my daughter. Would you receive that right now? Would you just receive that from God? Even if you've just got a whisper in your heart. God, I receive from you your grace right now. Help me not to hide from you. Help me to live Help me to see you in all your graciousness, not see you as a hard man that cannot be pleased or is hard to please. Help me to see that you've put all the steps before me. They are just uh, drizzled in grace. And you'll walk with me all the way. Even when I stumble, you're not the one who criticizes me for my stumble. You're the one who grabs me by the hand and lifts me to my feet. Lord, we receive all the things you have for us in this area. Help us be confident managers that whatever you've given us to be responsible for, you're going to give us the grace to walk it out. We ask that in your name. Amen.